0: invite our young people who are third grade and younger to make their way right here to my left your right to meet the best junior teach junior church teacher ever i'm not no no disparagement to the rest of you that do junior church um are appreciative of all our junior church workers and their ministry to our young people and uh the work that they do Be turning your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, Acts 19. Last week, we left Paul in Ephesus, and we now return to him. So, Acts 19, if you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided in the seats, you will find today's text on page 587. Page 587, Acts 19, beginning in verse 8. We will read this text of Scripture, and then we'll ask for God's help. Acts 19, verse 8. Follow along as I read aloud. This is the word of the Lord. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing, and telling their deeds, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Thank you. Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us as we consider your word, we learn about your word to apply it. I pray, Lord, that You would take our understanding and um, may Your Spirit work in our hearts, convict us, show us where we must change to be conformed to the image of Your dear Son. Bless us now as we study Your Word together in Your Son's precious name. Amen. The Battle of Waterloo was a seminal battle In the history of England, Wellington, the general, was setting out to defeat Napoleon. If he could win, the chances for England's survival were good. But if he were defeated by Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, the day would be lost and the prospects were grim. England waited with bated breath to find out what would happen at the battle. They waited for the telegraph that would come to tell them. And soon it began. The beeps and the dashes started coming across the wire. Even as fog began to roll in, they read a partial telegraph that said, Wellington defeated... And then the telegraph stopped. Word spread throughout England that Wellington had been defeated. It was a dark day. It was sad. And as as Englanders considered their fate, they were distraught. And some hours later, the fog lifted. There was reception again, and the telegraph could be completed. Wellington defeated the enemy. All the difference in the world the history of the English-speaking people. Well, we stand in the book of Acts on a battlefront, awaiting the news. Who will reign victorious? Which forces? Will they be the forces of the gospel or will they be the forces of evil? And Paul, one of God's own generals, is leading the charge straight into the mouth of the hottest part of the battle. And this is where we find Paul this morning, in a city called Ephesus, where he is facing difficult circumstances. He's facing a society that is troubled. He's facing a spiritual battle. Now, as we look at the news as we watch what is going on in our world, maybe, maybe you become distraught. It, doesn't it sometimes seem, at least since the beginning of 2020, like when you watch the news, like the world is falling apart. Like it's just melting down at the seams. Um, I, I have, and, and, and probably many of you who are about my age might, might say the same thing, I've not ever seen a year like this in my life. I mean, it is some unprecedented things are happening. And you look around and you say, what is going on? I mean, what is it that is, is just making the world seem like it's, it's falling apart at the seams? May we never forget that beyond the headlines, beyond the images that we see, behind the news stories that we read, there is a much more grand uh, narrative taking place. There is a spiritual battle that is raging around us. And what we see is merely a manifestation of a much deeper truth, a much deeper reality. We often forget that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And as we do any work on God's behalf, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. This is what Paul is doing. He is assaulting the gates of hell. And from this passage, we learn that we must apply God's power, which conquers evil. Apply God's power, which conquers evil. Peter says it this way, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The devil is a reality in the world around us and energizes warfare against God and His Word. And no, by the way, I know I do not take the devil as some kind of a metaphor, uh, some sort of a mere personification of evil that was fabricated by feeble medieval minds, as the liberal theologians would say. The Bible speaks of him in very concrete personal terms. Although he cannot be seen, he is alive and well, along with his hosts who do his bidding. And this is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, we do not, we wrestle, but we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? So our spiritual warfare is not not in some sense a, a, a jihad against our fellow man, right? We are in a spiritual battle, but it is not against flesh and blood, it is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are in a spiritual warfare. Paul wrote these words to the Ephesian church, which faced tremendous spiritual opposition. We know that they faced opposition in part because of history, but we also know it in part because of t- texts like today's text, where Paul is at the, at the beginning years of this church in Ephesus, the church that he would later write to in the book of Ephesians and remind them of the spiritual battle they are engaged on. The, the Ephesian church was a powerful church. It was a strong church. It was an influential church. We saw that last week. And so for all of these reasons, it was a church opposed by the enemy. You see, Ephesus was the seat of the cult of Diana, also known as Artemis. It was a cult dedicated to fertility, which is a somewhat euphemistic way of saying a cult dedicated to sexual decadence. Uh, Ephesus excuse me, was an economic hub. It was a prosperous trade center, and so this also made it the hub of materialism. It was, furthermore, a collection point for sundry, pagan, dark arts, black magic, sorcery, witchcraft. And into this this cesspool of debauchery, God birthed a powerful church that influenced all of Asia Minor. We saw that in last week's text. We'll see it again. And what we learn from this church, what we learn from the narrative here in Acts is that we are to apply God's power which conquers evil. Now how do we see this accomplished in the text? We see in verses 8 through 12 that God sometimes chooses to use self-denying servants to push back the forces of evil. Watch this in verse 8. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for 3 months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So Paul starts where he always starts. He starts in the synagogue, speaking to the Jewish people about their promised Messiah who had come. And he actually gets a relatively long hearing. I mean, you you think about how quickly he was run out of the synagogue in some of the other cities. For him to be three months in the synagogue in Ephesus is quite remarkable. I mean, Paul hadn't gotten beaten up yet, and he was there three months. Wow. But as as tended to happen... Eventually, they rejected the message. In verse nine, um, still in chapter nineteen, when uh, when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. So there were those who were following the way of Jesus. They were continuing to attend in the synagogue, but the message was being rejected. The rabbis, the leaders of the synagogue, were now speaking against Paul, and so he withdrew. And reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. I don't think this has any spiritual significance, but I I, I noted with interest that the, the name Tyrannus, it means tyrant. So this teacher was a pretty tough teacher. Uh, it, we assume that he, that was his nickname. I mean, who would name their kid Tyrant? So that was probably a nickname um, that his pupils called him. That has nothing to do with any... There's no spiritual significance there. I just thought it was worth note. So they go to this, this meeting hall where this, this teacher, this philosopher, had been teaching. Now, Christian texts from around that age that, that time period tell us that Paul rented Tyrannus's quarters from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. So by our reckoning, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So Paul... Is making tents in the morning. He's then lecturing for four or five hours in this philosopher's hall during the siesta period, the hottest part of the day when people would take a break and, and rest. He goes now to the lecture hall and teaches for, for four or five hours, and then he returned to work uh, on tents till about nine thirty p.m. That was his schedule for two years. Sounds tiring to me. I remember counseling at camp. Anybody ever counsel at camp? Who's a camp counselor? The most exhausting summer of my life. I mean, I couldn't think straight. I was so tired sometimes. You you would you would walk across the campsite and you think, I don't remember walking here. Like, you're so tired. You're getting up at, at wee hours of the morning so you can go to counselor prayer. And then you're getting back in time to get all of your cabin up. And then it was go, 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 go all day long. And then you'd get the 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 camper's back in bed, and then you go to another meeting, and then you would have a meeting after the meeting with your lead counselor, and all that. And then you're crashing in bed, you know, somewhere around midnight, 1230, and then you get up early the next morning and do the whole thing all over again. You got a little bit of a break on the weekends, but I mean, I just remember aching. I was so tired. But man, what a rewarding summer, because I was tired Pouring myself into other people, ministering to other people, sharing the gospel, counseling, doing things to 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 watch the spiritual growth of those who were in my cabin during that week. I can almost imagine that that's kind of what Paul felt like. I mean, this must have been an exhausting schedule for him. He, he continued to work diligently, day in and day out, six days out of the week, and and teaching, and training, and instructing, and giving the gospel, and disputing with the Jewish leaders, and God used it. God does work, God does the work, but God chooses to work through us, and for us to be involved in God's work requires hard work. There's no room for laziness. Our world teaches us about me time and the importance of self-care and says, you know, don't feel guilty about putting yourself first. Now, to be clear, you ought to steward the mind and body that God gave you so that you can effectively minister. Times of rest, times of refreshment are an important part of the cadence of a balanced Life then allows us to minister. So it's not to say we should never rest, but we must not fall to the temptation of laziness. Just kind of, yeah, you know, I'll minister whenever. But we ought to make ministry a priority such that, that we are willing to expend ourselves. In fact, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. And clearly we see in his ministry in Ephesus that that was his attitude. Henry Martin was an Anglican missionary to the people of India and Persia. As a young man, he swore he would be rich. He would never, never be poor for the sake of Christ like he had seen so many others. But in his final year at Cambridge, he was captivated by the writings of a man named David Brainerd, an early missionary to the American Indians. Martin experienced a dramatic shift during his college years as he read about the ministry of Brainerd. And so this young man who at one time thought he would be rich wrote this, I almost think that to be prevented going among the heathen as a missionary would break my heart. As he began to tell people about his, his burden to reach the world to be a missionary people thought he was throwing his life away in fact his biographer said this Martin's decision startled his world almost as much as if he had proposed a flight to the moon but this was his answer this is what he what he wrote the flesh shrinks at times but i do not regret having resigned the world life is but a short journey and then if i be faithful unto death my gracious Reward will begin. He said in another writing, I feel pressed in spirit to do something for God. I have hitherto lived to little purpose, more like a clod than a servant of God. But now let me burn out for God. And that's exactly what he did. He died a relatively young man at the age of 31 at the hands of tuberculosis. But even as tuberculosis ravaged his body and weakened him, he he persevered in his translation work. And by the time of his death at 31, he had established four primary schools. He had translated the New Testament into two languages, as well as the Psalms and the Anglican Book of Prayer. He burned out for God. He he did, as Paul said, he he spent and was spent in the labor of Christ. Paul worked hard. Those who have made an impact on their world worked hard. God does the work. We, have, we can't do the work, and just merely our hard work is not enough. Yet we must be surrendered to not be soft, not be weak, but to be willing to work hard in Christ's vineyard. Verse, uh, verse 10 of our text says, this continued for two years. So Paul continues the schedule. He continues to teach. He continues to train uh, men for ministry who would then go out and have an influence on that area of the world. And in verse 11, God worked, an unusual, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, the evil spirits went out of them. We've mentioned this several times in the book of Acts, that, that the sign gifts are used when new revelation comes. And so Paul, as he is on the front lines of missionary endeavor, he is taking this gospel that had not yet been heard. It goes with the power of the Spirit, which is authenticated by signs and wonders. And so there are miracles happening at the hand of Paul, even, even secondarily. People would take, the, the, one of these words is the idea of the sweat cloth that he would wipe his brow with and they would lay them on people, and people were healed. Now, if you look at verses 11 and 12, you might be inclined to think that this is a tribute to the great apostle Paul. And if you thought that, you would be mistaken. But actually, there were those in Ephesus who made the same mistaken assumption. We see them in verses 13 through 17. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So they used this this incantation. They they would use certain names as means by which to, to extract the demons from those who were possessed. One of the things that we must understand here from this passage is that Jesus is the only one powerful enough to push back the forces of evil. They clearly knew that Jesus was powerful. They clearly knew that Paul had the power of Jesus upon him, and so they invoked the name of Jesus, they invoked the name of Paul, and the evil spirit answers in verse 15, Jesus I know... Paul, I know. Now, there's an interesting contrast. Does anybody have something different in their translation in verses 15? Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know. Anybody? All right. Some translations word it differently. Yes, sir? Yes, he says, I recognize Paul. Okay. So, the words used here in the original language are actually two different words, both of which come into some English Bibles, both as translated know. So, the idea is, I know Jesus personally. I know him experientially, and and Paul, I, I recognize who he is too, right? So it's actually not the same word, but who do you think you are, right? Like I, I know yeah, I got these guys that you're talking about, but but who do you think you are? And there is this embarrassment by the by the exorcists who are trying to cast out this demon, as the demon possessed man now pounces on them, and even though dramatically outnumbered, is able to beat them up, and they go running, and naked, and scared. Exorcism was big business in those days. Demon possession was a problem. And these would come along with their incantations and their spells, and they were always looking for the, the, the deeper secret. In fact, they believe, many of them believe, that the reason that the Jews did not say the name of Yahweh, the name of Jehovah, was because it was a a mystery that unlocked a secret power. Now, that wasn't the reason the, the Jews didn't use the name of Yahweh out of out of reverence, out of respect, a, out of a fear of misusing the name, but they they were always looking for the the secret key that unlocks the door. That's mysticism. Right? And sometimes that creeps into Christianity too. Right? There's there's a form of Jesus that's that Jesus is is this secret spell, and that's kind of how they thought about Jesus. Oh, oh! now we know the secret that unlocks the power. We'll use, we'll use Jesus' name, and the evil spirit admits, I know the Lord Jesus, uh, I recognize Paul, but I don't know who you are. There is a form of, quote-unquote, Christianity that is popular in American culture that reduces... The gospel that reduces Jesus, that reduces Christianity to nothing more than mysticism. It, a, a magical spell. You know, the 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 cross hanging around the neck. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but 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 it's just my lucky charm. I, I've got i got crosses on my walls to ward off the bad stuff. Right? This this kind of mystical version of Christianity might be might be popular, but is not the gospel. They were attempting to use the name of Jesus like a magic charm. And and there might be those who would even use the name of Jesus, but, but know nothing of the power of the gospel, know nothing of the content of the message of Jesus. And that's indicative of the fact that they have no obedient faith to Jesus. Miles was just telling me that last night he was here on Main Street giving the gospel to some people outside of one of the bars. And this said, yeah, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then excused himself to what he actually said was to go sin. That is not the gospel. That is not the Jesus of the New Testament. Many might think that well, that, as long as I've got Jesus, my little lucky charm, I'm good. Jesus actually requires much more of that, more of us than that. And in fact, we see in verses 18 through 19, the power of Christ is seen in the good news of the gospel that transforms people. And so may we guard against a notion of Christianity that merely puts Jesus as, you know, the right words that we say. The 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 loyalty that we speak of that does not transform our lives. But what does the gospel do? It changes people. Notice in verses 18 to 19, and many who had believed, right? So we got a couple categories here. We got first of all those who had believed. They they were already believers, is kind of the implication of the verb tense. Those who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Why? Well, go back up to verse seventeen. This this incident that that merely merely waving Jesus' name is is not enough. But there's something more to the message of Jesus. Than a token Christianity. This incident that happened became known to Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And what happens in verse 7, the last part of verse 17? What happens? You got your Bible open? You're looking at it? Fear fell on all of them, and the name of Jesus is magnified. When the true message of Jesus is magnified, what happens? The gospel becomes effective in people's lives. Verse 18, those who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Many people have the notion, in fact, many unbelievers look at Christians and and accuse us, accuse Christians as, well, you're no different. You you, you think you're all good? What does the gospel percolating down into the hearts of Christians do, it calls us to repentance again and again and again, to recognize our own sinfulness. Christians are not people who who got it all fixed when we came to Jesus. We're people who are living in the light of the gospel, confessing, repenting, recognizing our own inadequacy each day. Those who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. You know what? This occasion made them realize I got some work to do. Yes, I'm a believer, but I've still got areas of my life that I must get right with God. This is a revival. This is believers come and there is this culture of confession that arises around the true message of Jesus being unleashed. And when that happens, what else happens? Verse 19, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm inclined to think that verse 19 is referring, about, referring to the, the, the conversion of those who were involved in the, in the, in the black arts, the, the, the dark arts, the, the magic of the day. So you have Christians getting right. You have people getting saved. And we don't mean they're just coming down an aisle and signing a a commitment card and, you know, saying the little Jesus prayer. Like they're serious about this. In fact, they're so serious that they stockpiled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now get this, a piece of silver was a year's wage. We're not talking about, you know, the little bookshelf in the corner I mean, they are burning a major financial investment. This is how serious they are about repentance. The gospel calls us to repentance. We don't get to to come to Jesus on our terms. Well, I want Jesus, but I kind of want him my way. We all have this temptation to kind of shape Jesus as we want him. That is not the gospel. The gospel, the true gospel, the gospel of faith and repentance, pushes back the forces of evil. Verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. God's general, Paul, on the front lines of the battle, prevailed through the power of the gospel. The message of Jesus calls for full commitment. Christianity is that which cannot be manipulated for one's own end, or dabbled in, or taken on our own terms. It calls us to surrender, to lay down our arms, to recognize that we are rebels, and to submit to him who is the Savior and Lord. We see this displayed through the commitment of Christians in verse 18. We see God's power on the gospel power on display as sinners come to repentance in verse 19. And all of this reminds us that Luke has shown us several different times that Christianity is not actually a form of revolution. It does not overthrow society. It is actually a reform movement that changes things from within the hearts of men, one heart at a time. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't try to change things in our world around us. We, we, there's much talk right now about injustices, right? And, and we should address injustice. We should attempt to influence for the right, for righteousness. We should maximize our love of neighbor as much as we can, but the reality is that the best way to change the world is through changed hearts. Ultimately, the gospel is what will have the greatest impact. Paul brought the message of the gospel to Ephesus. Did it dramatically change the society in Ephesus? Absolutely. But Paul was not there preaching a social gospel. He was preaching a gospel of personal redemption, which transformed hearts. It's not to say that we shouldn't address social evils. We should. But the way that we can most poignantly address them is through the preaching of the gospel. So God uses a self-denying servant named Paul. It, It is only because of the message of Jesus Christ, though, that Paul can make a difference. I wonder for each of us, how do we do? How readily do we accept the entire message of the gospel each day, remind ourselves of it, Continue to confess and repent. When's the last time you searched your heart and said, what area of my life is unsurrendered? Where is the holdout in my heart that I must confess? As we want to and long to and should desire to make changes in the world around us. Do we look to social reform as the primary means of doing that? Or do we recognize that it's not our, it's not our votes It's not our our social influence. It's not our posts on Facebook, most likely. It It is our personal testimony, our personal witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ that God uses to change hearts. There's power in the gospel, and we are to apply God's power, which conquers evil. Father, use this, your word, in our hearts and lives. Give us each day a fresh understanding of your word, of the gospel, of the power of Jesus Christ. May we be committed, as Paul was, to this message and to faithfully giving it to others. I'm going to give you a moment of quiet reflection and prayer as we bow together to apply the message of the hour to your own hearts.